Boy, what a great turnout, huh? And you know what? God answers prayer. We were a little concerned about the weather, but uh, it's it's cool, but it's not cold, uh, right? We, we got, uh, it's a little damp, but it's not raining, um, and it's perfect weather to get in the water. Uh, well, those that are being baptized, you can pray for them in more than one ways. Um, let's go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, there, there are Bible apps that you can pull up on your phone. Uh, the the Version Bible app is really good. Uh, we didn't bring our house Bibles with us today. Um, but uh, if you don't have a Bible app on your phone, certainly I would encourage you to get one. Um, but we're going to be in Luke 9 today, and we're going to be continuing in our series in Luke. Hopefully everybody will be able to follow along with that. So Luke 9, we're going to go through six verses, Luke 9, 1 through 6, um, and we will begin by reading the Word of God. It says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. O oh God of all power and authority, we submit ourselves to you this morning and plead with you to meet with us here and now, despite our undeservedness. Thank you, O oh God, for this day that we give to worship and honor you among one another and with your bride around the world who worships today as well. Forgive us our sins, which are many. Your mercy is more. And for that, we honor you. God, be present with us this morning as we examine your word. May your truth shatter our pride, drive us to sincere confession, and produce in us strength and power from the Holy Spirit. God, we pray that you would help us to understand the truths that you have for us and that you would cause us to be willing to fulfill your mission for us on this earth until you come. We give this time over to you to open our hearts uh, to your voice, and we ask that you be present with us in it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, you may realize this authority and submission really cannot exist apart from one another, they go together, which, which is why we say that God is going to get his way in the end. But if I'm to say that I have authority, uh, and yet I demand that something is fulfilled, and yet I cannot get anyone to fulfill that, my authority isn't very real, is it? Uh, and the it says something about the person in authority, but it also says something about the person who is subject to authority. My authority in this case would be on paper only. And the person whom I, I am supposed to be leading will not be led. When we do not obey God, we are rejecting his authority. We're dishonoring him. I loved serving as a police chaplain in New York uh, before I came back to California. It was a small department in a small town uh, but, but very little ever happened. 
until it did. Um, and I loved working with the rookies. They are, they are enthusiastic, they're excited, excited, they're gonna change the world, and they love doing 130 miles an hour with lights and sirens on. And that's fun, I'm telling you, if you've never done that. But what I loved most is what I learned from watching how these law enforcements were just natural leaders and dealt with tense or difficult situations successfully in many ways. If you want to learn patience, go on a few ride-alongs with police officers and just observe how they communicate with people throughout the night. One of our officers was always eager to have me on patrol with him. Uh, he was a veteran. He was this bald, uh, shorter guy with an extremely kind face, but he's also one of the finest police officers that I've ever met. And one day he and I responded to a disturbance call at Cuba Police Department's favorite apartment complex. We were there a lot. And, and we walked down the indoor hall and we heard the arguing coming from the unit. And so the officer kind of stood here on the, on the hinge side of the door and I kind of stood behind him as if his little stature could protect me from anything. And, and we stood there and he just patiently listened for a moment when a, a young woman opened the door and just turned and walked out the other way without even realizing we were standing there. And she turns and sees us and she's like, oh, oh, hi, and tries to close the door kind of real quick. And the officer puts his hand out against the door. He goes, let's go inside and talk for a minute. Because he had seen it, it was too late. There was a big, beautiful, glass, giant bong sitting right there on the coffee table. Now, if you don't know what a bong is, that's what people smoke marijuana with for those that are prone to doing so. Uh, and that is not legal, and New York at least wasn't at the time. And so uh, he replies back to this woman. He says, uh, you know, let's, let's go inside and talk. And I, so I stood there in this apartment and observed for well over a half hour as the officer patiently asked questions and got uneasy yet surprisingly consistent answers. They were honest with him. Uh, one of the young men in there was issued a citation and sent off to his own apartment. And the two residents of the apartment were placed under arrest for child endangerment because they had a kid running around with a bunch of pot on the coffee table. Uh, what was awesome is that the, at that police department, this officer processes the couple and they had to be cuffed to the bench and do all the fingerprinting and all those humiliating things. But because the officer was a great leader, they both happily complied with everything that he said. And at the end of the ordeal, uh, they were released to appear at a later date and took the time to thank the officer, not only for his kindness, but for the time that he spent imparting wisdom to them. He had actually taken the time to share his wisdom as a father himself and what they could do to be more attentive and loving parents. That police officer, in the course of what he had been commissioned to do by the town and by the state, was able to make a real difference in the lives of this couple and their child. But the thing that made the biggest impact was their willingness of the couple to submit to the authority of that police officer. In the end, they were better parents and citizens as a result of that submission. Jesus was the kind of leader that had that effect on people. Even, even better, he didn't need to wear a badge to prove his authority. We've seen his authority throughout the book of Luke in many different contexts up to this point. But here we're going to see a shift in that. Uh, we're going to see here that he, you, he has that power and authority and then he deputizes this 
his 12, the, the 12 disciples, the 12 that he called apostles, and gives them authority and a mission. And the 12 submitted to his authority. And what we'll learn is that even though Jesus has supreme authority, in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord when we respond to his authority um, and we submit to his will here and now. Our lives are forever changed and transformed as are some of the lives around us. So let's dig in. Luke 9, 1. And, and, and verses 1 and 2, it says, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, the first part of our passage is that Jesus commissions his disciples. If you recall, prior to this, Jesus had sailed across the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side with his disciples. In the midst of that journey, he'd fallen asleep because he was tired. A big storm comes. The boat's taking on water. It's threatening to capsize. So the, the disciples wake him up to tell him what's going on. And he responds by using his authority to tell the storm to stop. And the storm submitted to him and stopped. Then they get to the east side and a demon-possessed naked guy is running around in the tombs. This guy has what's described as a legion of demons who ask to be cast into a herd of pigs instead of being in cast into the abyss. And so Jesus obliges and the demons come out of the guy and go into about 2,000 pigs who respond by running off the cliff and drowning. Last week, Jairus comes begging Jesus to come to his house because his 12-year-old daughter is dying. Jesus is stalled because a woman with an issue of blood had touched him anonymously for healing. And Jesus stops to see who it is so that he can reveal that he it is not anonymous divine power that she needs, but to be personally touched by him and have a relationship with him. By the time Jesus gets to Jairus' daughter, she had died, and Jesus heals her and raises her from the dead. And this passage today should be readily read closely with that piece. It's important to note that the same authority that Jesus had just exercised, he is now passing on to the twelve. And now we see a significant shift in Jesus' mission in light of that. To this point, the 12 had been in training, sitting at his feet and learning, but they're going to be told to get out of the classroom and get into the lab. We're also going to see a transition from his ministry in Galilee as he and his disciples begin to make their way towards Jerusalem. Jesus had at this point a large number of disciples, but here we see him single out the 12. You might recall that distinction in chapter 6 where he calls these specific 12. This is Luke, uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named, Simon whom he named Peter, and Andrew's brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. We'll read about that later. So these are 12 special disciples that he called apostles. A disciple is a student or a learner, one who follows the teachings of another. So if you're a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus. 
The word apostolos, which we translate apostle, means one who is sent or one who is sent with orders. In practice, it is one who goes out on a mission with the authority of the one who sent him. In the New Testament, it refers to the specific office of apostle that Jesus gave these 12 specific men. Judas was a betrayer who was replaced later by Matthias. And then Paul's like the 13th apostle or like the fifth beetle, right? He just kind of shows up in the background. He's like, I'm here. And he was affirmed by the rest of the apostles uh, because of the way in which he experienced his uh, calling uh, as an eyewitness to the risen Lord. Remember Jesus, he, he came, uh, he uh, spent, after he died, he rose from the dead. He spent 40 days walking around and appearing to, the, to lots of different people. And then he ascends into heaven. Well, later on, Paul's on his way to Damascus to go uh, persecute Christians. And Jesus makes a cameo appearance. He shows up. He, 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 he knocks Paul down. And Paul's like, who are you, Lord? And he goes, I'm the Lord Jesus who you're persecuting. And you're going to be uh, my apostle. And he told, he told Paul that uh, ultimately that he was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so the other apostles affirmed that. So that's an office of special apostolic authority that died with those 12 apostles because Jesus had not appeared to anyone else in that way after his resurrection. But in the wider sense, we are called by God, uh, when we're called by God to any teaching or proclaiming ministry, it's an apostolic calling in the sense that God will give us what power and authority that we need to accomplish what he has called us to. These 12 who held the office of apostle that Jesus specifically gave them, the Christian church today is built upon the teaching and authority which was given them to them by Jesus right here in other places. So Jesus is taking them to the next level. They're now going to put their learning into practice. Have you ever felt unequipped to do the things that God's called you to do? I think we all have. I remember uh, years ago, uh, my mom, is a, she's a breast cancer survivor. She has a lot of medical problems. And uh, it was about 10 or 12 years ago. Even back then, she wasn't very active. Uh, she spent a lot of time in bed. She spends a whole lot of time, more time in bed now. But she has about 10 acres in southern Oregon and called me one morning to ask if I could pray for her because she had a lot of work to do on her property, but she wasn't feeling well. She wasn't feeling up to it, so she needed God to help her to feel better. Well, I asked if God had called her to accomplish those things or if he would, if she thinks he would rather have a rest, then she was convinced that God had given her the property and that he would have her to take care of it. So recalling something that I remembered from Monty Sharp years ago, you remember him coming during the summer to speak here. Uh, I, I told her that it wouldn't take much faith for her to do the chores if she felt up to it. So I would pray for her, but then she would have to get up and do the work whether she felt like it or not. She would have to act on her faith that God would give her the strength she needed. And so we prayed. I don't think it was until at least seven o'clock, maybe after eight that night, that she calls me up and she, she says, Jeff, you'll never believe it. And I'm like, I'll bet I will. Right? And, and she went on to tell me that after beginning her work, she wasn't feeling well. She began the work. She started feeling stronger and stronger and finished everything she set out to accomplish, and then some. And then 
that she was tired and sore, but she felt great. Well, nothing in this passage indicates that the 12 felt equipped to do what Jesus was asking them to do. They had to be obedient by faith in order to exercise the authority and power that was given to them. One commentator called this event a dress rehearsal for the post-Pentecostal mission of the 12. That we read about in Acts 1.8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's a mission that extends to all Christians today. Mark says in Mark 6 that Jesus sent them out two by two. Well, that detail wasn't really as important to Luke's audience, since it was much further removed geographically. The key point is that this was a mission of proclaiming. The healing and driving out demons was for the purpose of demonstrating the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom is central to Christ's teaching, and it's also very easily misunderstood. I like what, how Philip Ryken put it. He said, the kingdom of God is not a territory protected by an army or an empire on a map, but a sovereign dominion over the hearts of God's people. Ultimately, we know that extends everywhere because he owns all. He is the God and creator of all. And so we can see that proclaiming God's kingdom and physical healing are things that go together because spiritual and physical realms are more closely connected than we often imagine. Jesus is sending the disciples out to meet both spiritual and physical needs. And that often means meeting spiritual needs by meeting physical needs. In fact, that's what our Open to Arms ministry is about. That's what they do when they go down to Banning to serve the homeless. They're, they're meeting their physical needs, and that opens the doors for spiritual needs to be met. This event in Luke is ultimately a mission of proclamation. The power and authority are meant to be gospel-driven and gospel-centered. Once he's commissioned the 12, he gives them a list of instructions. He starts in verse 3 by telling them to take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Well, his first command was not to take along a bunch of stuff. The staff could have been more of a walking stick or maybe a defensive weapon. Probably could have been used for both. A bag would have been where bread and an extra garment were carried. So why did he give these restrictions? Uh, there's a small probability that this would remind them of like a rabbinic tradition that they would enter the temple mount without a staff or shoes or money belt or dust on their feet because they were embarking on a sacred mission. But more likely, there were some pieces such as identifying with the poor and also that, uh, that there was a sense of urgency in this. Don't, don't go get your stuff. Just, just do it. Right? The Great Commission that's given to us in Matthew 28 is, has a similar sense of urgency. Go therefore, make disciples, teach them, baptize them. And it, it, it concludes with Christ's promise uh, to be present to the end of the age. And the implication is that we should always consider the end to be near. Not taking, the, not, not taking those things that Jesus told them not to take would also be a reminder of their reliance upon God. 
They needed to avoid hanging on to the things of this world and depend on God to supply their needs. In the wider sense, to us, it can point to leaving it all behind to follow Jesus. Matthew 19, 29 says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, this is Jesus speaking, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And in Luke 14, 11, Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Philippians 3, 8 through 11 says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain, attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, we know that salvation is by grace alone. But how can we say that we are Christ's disciples if we don't obey him? That would be a contradiction, wouldn't it? In fact, we have five people being baptized today. I spent some time with them, and one of the things we talked about is how when the early Christians were baptized, they were renouncing worldly systems and worldly things. In the Roman Empire, there was a phrase that everyone would have to confess. Caesar is Lord. Well, the Christians wouldn't do that. Instead, they would confess Jesus is Lord. In their baptism, they would do this, along with some other fundamentals, which marked them for persecution. They could arrest you. They could beat you. They could take your stuff. They could even execute you. And so each of the people being baptized today have confessed that they would do this even if it cost them their very lives. Baptism is an act of obedience. And while you might be theoretically able to be saved and not baptized, for example, like the thief on the cross, he could do nothing but hang there and die after he confessed Jesus as Lord. A disciple is a follower. And if you don't follow Jesus, how could you consider yourself a follower of Jesus? So part of the reason that they're being baptized is because Jesus commanded us to be baptized. Let's move on to Luke. Uh, move on in Luke 9 here, verse 4. It says, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Now, this is uh, Jesus' second, the second command to the 12 had to do with lodging as they traveled. It's the second thing he said. Now, what happened is under Mosaic law, if a stranger showed up, you were to give them food and shelter and hospitality. This was the, this was the law. These were the rules that God gave to the, to the Jews. Some of us have that gift. Right? Somebody has a need, and suddenly we make them our best friend, and we give them a room and clothes and steak and, and whatever they, and they're like, I just, I just asked for a glass of water. But we're just, we just want to serve, right? That's some of us here. I know a lot of people like that. Dennis and Cindy, who set all this up with the, with the kids, they're like that. They just want to serve people. And then others of us are just the opposite. There's somebody's like walking by our house, we're like, get off my lawn, right? <laughs> Under Jewish law, you couldn't do that. You had to be hospitable. There are a couple of likely reasons Jesus told them to stay in one place and then go from there and not to move from 
house to house in the same town. The first is so that they wouldn't be out looking for a better situation. That would compromise the message. This mission was about the gospel, not personal comfort. The second reason is that according to the customs of that time, long visits in someone's house would be out of line. And if they were to stay in any town too long, they would be overstaying their welcome in that house. So it appears that Jesus wanted them to move on after a few days. In that sense, this ministry that Jesus was calling the 12 to in that time was more about proclamation than building relationships. Now, it's important to note that these instructions are not the same as what he gives to the church uh, in, in all ways. Uh, they were for this particular mission. And, and it's not even permanent for those 12. Later on, he ends that command to them. This is what he says in Luke 22, verses 35 and 36. He says, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Oh, Pastor Jeff, are you telling me that Jesus told his disciples to carry weapons? Well, yeah, <laughs> that's what he said, right? I mean, shortly thereafter, Peter lops off Malchus's ear with one of those swords to protect Jesus, and Jesus put the ear back on and told Peter that wasn't the time or the place. But, but yeah, I mean, he, at that time, he did tell him to carry him. And the mission we're talking about here, though, uh, they were to go empty-handed. Later on, it, it was different. That's why we have to be careful how we judge each other. Following Jesus is about living daily in relationship with him so that we're sensitive to how he is leading us. It isn't a list of rules. Uh, sometimes he has different things for different people in different times, and that's okay. That, that being said, there are actual universal commandments that never go away and we all must submit to. But when it comes to mission, strategies can change. At this point, Jesus had a good reason to tell the apostles to travel lightly and to move quickly from town to town. Let's move on to verse 5. Jesus, continuing to speak, says, and whatever, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Well, the second command had to do with the places in which they were well received. The third commandment had to do with the places in which they were rejected. Dusting off the feet reflects a rabbinic tradition that when they would come back into Israel from a foreign land, they would carefully wipe all the dust of that foreign land off their feet before they entered the Holy Land. And that's because everything outside of the borders of Israel was pagan, and pagans were considered to be unclean. So by dusting off their feet, the twelve would functionally be calling those towns that rejected them to be unclean pagan towns. In other words, because you reject Jesus, you are not of Israel. R.C. Sproul said, we see a scary concept here that is found throughout Scripture. And it's this. God's patience will not last forever. Some people postpone their repentance and say, I will be committed to God tomorrow. I will change my ways tomorrow. I will give my life to Christ tomorrow, but not today. Well, the twelve dusting off their feet of the, of the dust of the rejecting towns indicates the seriousness of that rejection. It, it illustrated God's rejection 
of those towns in judgment. The same goes for those who hear the good news of Jesus Christ and reject it. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you are relying on God's patience. You're not ready to be fully surrendered to Jesus. I mean, life's busy, right? And Jesus said to be faithful about fellowship in church, but the kids have sports. The Jets are playing at 10. I mean, you know, there's, there, there are things we have to do, right? I'll have to be more diligent to obey Jesus later. Maybe for some of you, feel like it's too late for you. It's not too late now, but at some point, it becomes too late. Just like when the 12 wiped that dust off of their feet. God is eternal. He never changes. But his patience does run out at some point. We know in the end, death in Hades is cast in the lake of fire. Those who have repented of our sins and placed our trust in him, we get to participate in the inheritance of his only begotten son as adopted heirs. Remember we talked about that in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. Right? Uh, and we get to reign with him forever. And his patience will, will no longer be necessary because he will have restored all things to himself. Genesis 6.3. It says, The Lord says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. In the days of Noah, it took Noah a really long time to build that ark. It didn't happen overnight. God was patient. He gave the people of the world plenty of warning, but in the end, their time ran out and the flood happened. Our lives are short. And once we die, it is too late. Hebrews 9, 27 to 28, it says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Because he dealt with the sin when he went to the cross, right? During the Exodus, the Israelites wandered the desert for 40 years while the Canaanites heard how God was with them, how they escaped Pharaoh and the Egyptian army was swallowed up by the Red Sea, and how they continued to win impossible battles because God was with them. They had 40 years of warning. That's pretty patient, I would say. 40 years of warning. In the end, though, they never surrendered. God sent in Joshua, and he did so with a command to utterly destroy everyone. In all of those cases, repentance and surrender to God would have resulted in grace and mercy being poured out. There really are only two options in the end, forgiveness or judgment. For the Christians, we have forgiveness. But if we are followers of Jesus, we will follow him. If we are his disciples, we will obey him. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in verse 21, it continues, for whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. And then if you go to James chapter 2, it says in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the, believe, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? It isn't that we're saved because we do good things. That's not the case. We do good things because we're saved, right? We're not saved because we obeyed God. We obey God because we're saved, right? It's, it's the outcome. Let's continue in verse 6. It says, They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They obeyed Jesus. This mission is very similar to the great commission that he gave us after he rose from the dead and before he sent to the he ascended into heaven. This is what he said in Matthew 28. Jesus speaks to the disciples. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus continues his mission of proclamation today through ordinary Christians. A Christian is a disciple of Jesus. And while we may not have the same apostolic power and authority as the twelve, we have a mission from Christ. And when we need power, he will supply it. And when we need authority, his sovereignty is present with us. And he will give us what we need to fulfill that mission. There are a lot of people out there claiming to follow Jesus. Many who do not actually follow Jesus. In fact, I would venture to guess that most people in the Western world who call themselves Christians might be counterfeit. Well, well it's not very... For me to judge the heart of another, the reality is that few professing Christians actually confess Christ with their lives. Our faith will be evident by our faithfulness. The words are the, the same piece, right? Faith and faithfulness. Our faithfulness to God, our faithfulness to His commands. Our faith will be evident in our lives. Our society somehow has turned Christianity into some sort of cultural thing. Like, a better American is a better Christian. Right? Or the more you care about social justice issues, the more you're in line with Jesus' teachings. Okay, both of those things are good, but, but they're convoluted in a way. How can anyone call themselves a disciple of Jesus and reject his teachings? The Bible doesn't teach us that following Jesus means being patriotic or voting to use taxpayer money to help poor people. It doesn't teach us to overlook character in favor of good policy, and it doesn't teach us that being can't lead a just nation. Do your politics as you will. That's, that's your conviction, and that's good. But the Bible says to obey God. Our culture likes some of that. They like the do not murder part, right? Like, that's a good one, right? They don't like it when you go around killing people. But right? don't steal. Don't take my stuff. Our culture likes that. Love your neighbor. Yeah, that's a good one. We don't want to be fighting with people all the time. But, but then our culture thinks that we take it too far when we also agree with the Bible on things like, sec, like biblical sexuality, honoring God's created order, living generously, investing faithfully in the first of your earnings in the church, unconditional forgiveness. We don't like that. Some people don't deserve to be forgiven. But it's what the Bible teaches us to do. In fact, our Western culture is so driven by robust individuality that people are, are offended when we insist that a Christian needs to submit to commands like baptism 
and regular fellowship in the church. How can we say that we follow Jesus if we refuse to follow him? If we refuse to do what he says, if we refuse to agree with what he says about the world and humanity. You see, sin sears your heart. It hardens you. And the more you become callous to your own sin, the harder it becomes to accept God's mercy. And God interacts with that. At some point, he turns the sinner over to their own sin. I know this is all a bunch of bad news. We'll get to the good stuff in a minute. Romans 1. Romans 1, 18 to 25. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We don't like to hear about God's wrath, do we? But it's there, it exists. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Today, you will witness profound obedience by people who have confessed faith in Christ Jesus and can, have committed to follow him. Part of obedience is understanding. We can't follow someone we don't know and we can't obey orders we haven't heard. As the church grew in the book of Acts and beyond, the Christians had to adapt to various cultures that they encountered. To the Jewish people, they had a foundational knowledge of who God is through the Old Testament. So they were, there were only a few gaps really that needed to be filled in. They could often just baptize someone almost right away because they understood the implications. That's because the Old Testament gives us a lot of inf information about Christ or Messiah. But as they moved on into Africa and Asia and Asia Minor and Europe, and they encountered cultures that knew very little of God. They also encountered intense persecution all over the place in the Roman Empire. In fact, next week we're going to see that we're going to see Herod show up. That's going to be a reminder that our missio dei, our our mission from God, does not come without serious opposition. As the church spread, it became evident that there needed to be a way to ensure that people understood the Christian faith before they could be baptized. And so a system of what they called catechesis quickly developed. This was a way to bring people up to speed and to make sure their understanding of who God is and what Christ did measured up to a, a minimal standard. It was called the rule of faith, like a ruler that measures things, right? The rule of faith. It took a few different forms. There were just memorization techniques, poems, songs, or questions and answers. But the content was all the same and eventually became expressed in what we know today as the Apostles' Creed. It was called that because it actually comes from the writings of the apostles, which we read about in the, in the New Testament, 
And as we saw, they had the authority to do that. Now for us, some people can get uncomfortable with the idea of creeds and catechisms because it seems like a Roman Catholic thing. And there are some of us that have baggage from the Roman Catholic Church. And, and there are some issues with doctrine and practice today that I think some of us would take issue with. I, I can assure you that it's not a Roman Catholic thing, to, creeds and catechisms. It, it, actually, it was the Protestant reformers in the 14th and 15th centuries that restored the practice of catechesis that the Roman Catholics had actually at the time all but abandoned centuries earlier. Thanks, thankfully, they've come back to some of that. Catechesis just means instruction. And in the early church, someone who was attending church but had not been baptized was called a catechumen. And that means they were a person under instruction to learn the fundamentals of the faith that they would need to understand before they were baptized. In the church service, everyone would gather, they would sing, they would read scripture, and they would hear teaching, and then everyone was dismissed in that church service that usually took place in, place in houses. Uh, everyone was dismissed except for the baptized Christians, and they would remain to partake of communion and participate in other sacred prayers and things. <clears throat> so those being baptized today, they've all read a small book on baptism and then they sat in a class with me uh, where uh, Pastor Clint and I made sure that each of them understood the basics of the Christian faith. Today, you're going to witness them making a public confession to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to the basic biblical teachings of the Christian faith. We're going to use the wording of the Apostles' Creed, but we made a change so that we don't confuse people. There's a line in the original that deals with the church. In its original form, it uses the word Catholic with the lowercase c when we're dealing with the church. Now, it's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. The word actually means all Christians everywhere and all times. It's a way of identifying ourselves with Christian, uh, our Christian brothers and sisters around the world from the time of the apostles uh, as our eternal family. But that word Catholic with a lowercase c also carries with it... Or, even with an uppercase, he carries with it some baggage. You see, after Martin Luther was excommunicated and they tried to kill him, the Roman church hijacked the term from the rest of the Christians. At least they, they tried to. And the reformers for a while resisted that and refused to call them Catholic. And instead they used words like Romanists and Papists. It was kind of an insult. Unfortunately, the Roman church, I think, was successful in capturing the word. So it's difficult for us to use today. Uh, we're just going to say God's Holy Church instead of the Holy Catholic Church because we want to talk about everybody, right? All true believers. I want you to know what we're saying. We believe that when we are baptized, we are baptized into the identity of God's holy people from all ages and all places. The church is not an organization. It is an eternal, holy fellowship of believers. This morning, five Christians are participating in a holy, sacred rite of obedience. They're confessing their belief in our one, holy, triune God. They're confessing belief in the Father who authored creation through the Son. They're confessing Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and His work on the cross to deliver us from sin. They're confessing faith in the Holy Spirit who dwells in God's people and empowers them. 
They're confessing that God has the authority to judge the world. That the church is one family, that we are unified together as saints, that we are forgiven of sins, and that we will one day be resurrected bodily. And they're confessing the promise of eternal life. They will confess these things before you, and in doing so, will be making a covenant to serve Christ faithfully. They're committing to be held accountable for this commitment by those who are Christians. And they are renouncing all worldviews and beliefs that are not in complete alignment with the biblical Christian faith. The imagery of baptism is important. They'll be lowered into the water as a symbol of dying to their old sinful life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And as they're, as they're raised from the water, it is a symbol of washing. 1 Peter 3, 18-22 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, and in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And, and these five will then come out of the water as an image of being raised to, do, to new life. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might, might walk in the newness of life. This is what it means to be born again. Romans 8, 10, and 11 says, But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So what I'm going to ask is, uh, as uh, the worship team comes up, we're going to have another scripture reading. They're going to uh, come and, and play uh, another worship song um, and then myself and all those who are being baptized are going to line up over there um, and in order will be Lucy, Lene, Isaiah, Ashley and Noah and they're going to line up over there and then if you could during that song if you'd like you can move maybe move your chairs or something move a little closer to the baptismal so that you can see and, and hear everything this is an extremely special time, and one of the great privileges I have as serving as the pastor of IBC. Baptism is absolutely sacred and glorious, and so I am uh, honored, and, and the, those being baptized today are honored that you are with them to witness this event. So as we do that, uh, I'm going to pray, and uh, the worship team will come up, and we'll get ready for our baptism. And then afterwards, there will be instructions for all the food and that.
Let us pray. Perfect God, we ask that you would help us to see your great power and authority in our lives so that we might obediently proclaim your goodness. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us so that our lives may be marked by faithfulness to you. God, we thank you that in our weakness, you are strong. As we prepare to witness the baptism of five faithful Christians this morning, we pray that their confession is sincere and that you would make them strong to live up to the faith that they are expressing today. God, continue to grow and mature them as they take this step of obedience. As we witness each of these confessions, I pray that you would speak to those here whom you are calling to repentance, to baptism, or to service. Cause them to submit to you and obey your will for them. God, we surrender our will and our concerns to you. Cause us to learn to rely on your provisions as we seek to obey you and to participate in the mission field that is around us. We ask these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.